I look back in astonishment at what I achieved and without disappointment. I wouldn't change a thing. Only days after celebrating her 60th birthday had the sheer privilege and delight of chatting with Lisa Curry. These words are on the back of her memoir, Lisa, and her life is indeed an extraordinary one. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. Triple Olympian and wellness entrepreneur Lisa Curry has lived her life in the public eye for four decades. A swimming prodigy who became one of Australia's first fitness entrepreneurs, Lisa swam to Olympic fame in the 80s and the 90s. Over the last few years, Lisa has faced family tragedy and has recently faced the loss of her dear mum. In this conversation, Lisa shares her lessons learnt. She shares some of the hard moments and how they have shaped and are continuing to shape who she is and ultimately that there's more life to keep living and more lessons to keep learning. This is a life-affirming conversation and one that I feel very privileged to share with you. So without sharing too much more, my encouragement to you is to pause, to tune in and to soak up this beautiful conversation with Lisa Curry. Lisa, welcome and it's fantastic to connect with you and to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah, nice to see you. <laughs> Where we are chatting and I know this week that you celebrated your 60th birthday. How did you mark the mark the moment? Uh, I know, can you believe it? I like 60 has always sounded really old, but <laughs> when you hear it's actually not so bad, you know, but um it was a really big, it's been a really big couple of weeks. I had my book launch because I wanted to launch that for at my 60th birthday. But in the same week as my 60th, you know, it was Mother's Day and it's our wedding anniversary. And then my birthday and extended birthday, my husband um, was full of surprises for the last couple of weeks. And I'm still recovering. We had a, we had a surprise party and I had no idea. I knew something was happening, but I didn't know what and uh, walked in and all my nearest and dearest friends from forever were there and he kept that such a great secret so yeah it was a really good weekend and I'm still recovering (laughs) (laughs) which is exactly how celebrations and marking moments really should be in in terms of coming up to your 60th as you say you know sometimes a number can be a what does that actually mean did you have any kind of reflections on what that means from an age point of view for yourself um, I kind of, I, I was a bit more scared about turning 50 than 60 because that's, that, that's like a half century. But once you pass that and get over that, um, it's okay. But it's funny, you know, 60 is kind of the age where, well, for me, the first 30 years I've spent, you know, growing up and swimming. The second 30 years I was, you know, had family and working and now it's like, well, what's the next 30 years hold for me, you know? And then if you get to 90, I reckon those last 10 years, you know, do what you like, smoke, drink, take drugs, pole dance, whatever. I'm joking, but you know what I mean? <laughs> no, it's like a victory lap, right? You can, you yeah, can yeah, celebrate. Yeah, the last, the last um, run for the wall. So, yeah, I don't know what the next 30 holds. I just hope it goes a little bit slower than the last couple of years have gone because it just seems to be whizzing by and, 
there's lots of things that I still want to do. Um, you know, I'm still running my business and um, we've got 64 acres here, which, you know, needs a lot of attention and my daughter's about to give birth any day now. So, you know, there's, there's still a lot on. There's still a lot to be grateful for and to, and to look forward to as well. Sounds like the next 30 years have, have already got their starting point and the the, um, <laughs> the sense of kind of opportunity again. One of them being the launch of your memoir, your beautiful book, which is just an amazing you know, collection of your stories, your careers and your experiences. If I go back, one of the things that jumped out in looking at it was uh, recognising that you were nearly called Susan and that you say that you really love being named Lisa. You were named after Lisa Gay, an actress from the golden age of Hollywood. How relieved are you that you weren't called Susan? <laughs> Suzanne, actually. Um, and I know some really nice Suzannes. Um, but, yeah, no, I'm pretty happy about that. Lisa is still, I think, quite an, an old sort of name. Oh, I mean, it's you don't even think too much about your name. Um, my middle name was Gay, so that was, you know, kind of got <laughs> heckled a little bit by my friends with that. But, um, yeah, no, I love my name. It's good. It's a little bit different, a little bit old school. So, yeah, it's good. In looking at... The, the history and your career, obviously, you're well known here in Australia for your swimming career, but also as a, as a businesswoman. Looking at it, I, I noticed that, you know, from a chronological point of view, in 1952, your dad arrived in Australia on a boat from Ireland. In 1962, you were, you were born. And in 1972, at the age of 10, you were fiercely competitive, winning bronze at both a state high jump and also silver in the four by 100 metre relay. Where did that fierce determination come from? I think from my dad, when you know the history about my dad, like in, in Ireland, he was a young entrepreneur. He was selling clothing goods. He was always well-dressed. He was then selling um, real estate as well. And he really had the gift of the gab, which I think I, I, got, I got from him. But also he was very, dad was very driven to you know succeed in what he was doing and and maybe then on the other side of that you know the the resilience and endurance came from my mum who who um you know was always there for all the kids and put up with a lot and and um so probably got a little bit of both of them but yeah it's funny that you say that because I've never actually you know the 52 62 72 and then 82 Commonwealth Games and then 92 Olympics if you you know want to keep going on that line so every 10 years something happens and it's funny because people say oh you know you're such a success but then they say success you know can take 10 years to get you know to reach the goal that you want to reach so the determination in the decades (laughs) yes yeah 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 1932 um 2032 2042 yeah Yeah, Mm. there'll be key things to kind of come come along in 1972 was also the year that you watched Shane Gould win Olympic gold in Munich and that ignited something in you. What did it ignite? Yeah, I um, well, my coach, Mr Gallagher, saw me swim at the local pool and he had obviously trained, you know, people like Dawn Fraser and and um, he saw me swim and, and came and asked me to join his squad, which I did. And then that was the same year Shane Gould won her three Olympic gold medals and I was so inspired by her. I did my projects on school on Shane and I wanted to be like her because I I thought I could because I looked like her only because she had blonde hair and I had blonde hair. That was about it. <laughs> but I had no idea the amount of work that went into 
you know, this sport until I started in it. But it to me, it was never hard work. To me, it was always good fun. I was there with my friends, made new friends. You know, most weekends we'd go away on a road trip and, and race other kids. And my whole growing up was just fun, you know. But there was a part of my life that stopped when my swimming started. And that was, you know, our, our weekends down the Gold Coast with the family and, you know, being out in the surf on a, well, it wasn't a boogie board in those days. It was a blow-up mat. And those days in the in the 70s, you know, you, life changes, obviously. And, and But that's what parents do for kids, you know, when your kids are um, excited about, you know, their sport or their activities that they're doing as children. You do whatever you can to make it work for them and that's what my mum and dad did. They f- you find a way, you get them there and when it comes to swimming, it's the early starts, it's the weekend work and you talk about, you know, connecting connecting into that. Was there a key, clear decision that swimming was the pathway that you were going to follow? It, it looked like your that steely determination could have gone in any, whether it's sporting uh, arena. Was, was there a particular decision that swimming was going to be the pathway? Um, I think maybe even the first time I won a race when I was 10. And I think, you know, you, you get a little bit of excitement from that. You know, it, it's fun to win, of course. But every time you win a race, it's just, I don't know, it's just like that's what I wanted to do. And um, But like I said, I, I just loved, I loved my swimming. I loved the early mornings. I used to sleep in my togs, you know, so I could get there quicker and but I was never a child that said, oh, you know, I'm tired today, I don't want to go. I was never, ever like that. And having three children and going through all the, you know, the sports ourselves, you wonder, you know, where did I get that from? It's really interesting, you know, obviously that pathway and often as kids we're just thinking about the next thing and the next thing, but not only the the training and the determination, but you had to navigate getting um, being allergic to the chlorine at one point, which I'm surely yeah. <laughs> becomes a bit of a you know a tough thing to do when it comes to training. Yeah, well, that was that was always a bit of a um, <laughs> a bugbear with mine. I mean, there was nothing I could do it do about it. I was allergic to the chlorine. I would come home and I would sneeze every day, every day. There were always tissues in my pockets and. For a while there, I I wore a nose clip, but um, my vanity got the better of that and I I thought they looked stupid, so I I stopped wearing it and just decided that, you know, sneezing was a better option. But, yeah, not a a good sport to choose when you've got an allergy to it, but I didn't know that. (laughs) I didn't know it when I started. I thought, you know, I had a cat. I was allergic to my cat as well, so I didn't realise I was allergic to the cat until the cat died and stop sneezing from the cat so <laughs> <laughs> the determination around it anyway just carry the tissues um, along mm-hmm. the way you introduce in the book and talk very affectionately about your coach Mr King and that's the name that that you always gave him even though coaches often had nicknames he was known as Mr King do you remember the first time that you met Mr King yeah I do um, my coach Mr Gallagher had taken a position to coach in Canada so I had to find a new coach and some of the girls from school were going to Mr. King. So we went and it was one afternoon and I walked into the valley pool and he just turned around and he had the biggest smile on his face. And he, he said later it was the best day of his life when he saw me walking in towards him because he'd seen me swim 
as an 11 and 12 year old and he'd said geez I wish I could coach that kid one day and then all of a sudden I turned up on his doorstep so we had a really great relationship for oh you know 20 25 years and he became like another a dad to me you know because you spend a lot of time with them so we trained 11 times a week on average two to two and a half hours so you know you're looking at between you know 20 and 30 hours a week that you spend with that person and you know not only is he coaching us in the pool but also coaching us just in life as well so Mr King's a really really special man in that I mean that volume of time you see not only the best of each other as humans in any kind of relationship but also the worst of each other you know sometimes it can be those places what did he give to you not only in your career but for you as a person yeah I don't think you know when you see the worst in in each other I don't even think I saw that in him or he saw that in me there was just none of that like I just, you know, I loved and respected him so much. And, you know, if he said jump, I'd say how high. You know, he's just that sort of person. But when we'd go on little road trips, you know, we'd all get into the car with him. But he'd teach us about um, road rules and about thinking ahead and what the consequences of doing this and that and that are. And those things have really stuck with me a lot. And, um, yeah, he used to talk about just life in general and being respectful to people uh, complimenting people when you have a chance to, um, you know, visualizing in your mind um, what you want out of life and um, just just things like that. Like he was quite worldly um, and he'd, he'd been through a lot already. He, he was the editor of a newspaper in Brisbane and he was a, a netball coach actually and then just took up swim coaching for his uh, daughter and, and their friends. So, um yeah, he had a lot of life lessons to teach all of us. And I think if you spoke to any of his swimmers um, that were coached by him, they would all say exactly the same thing. Something about the power of the team and the support that we have around us that sometimes we don't even know the impact. We can know it in the moment, mm. but it's in, in hindsight and on reflection, the power of those, and that really came through in terms of the 25 years that, that you've obviously worked and collaborated together. You mm. went to your first Commonwealth Games um, in Canada uh, at Edmonton. What was that like when you you knew you were part of the Commonwealth team? Yeah, it was pretty exciting. Um, 1978, so what was I? I was 16, so pretty raw. I'd been on a few overseas trips before that and um, I had really had the bug for racing and I really – you know, it didn't matter who it was or where I was. I just wanted to get up on the blocks and dive in and try and beat as many people as possible. But it was a real eye-opener. And then after that, we went to the um, the World Championships in um, in Berlin. And that was when we first saw all the East Germans. And that's when we really saw the rest of the world, you know, the Americans, the Germans, the French, the, you know, Italians and, you know, the East Germans. So... Of course, they were winning everything in those days. And to be part of that era is kind of history now. Like our swimmers have no idea what it was like to be in that era and swim with those type of people. So, um, you know, I can talk to my friends about it and, and now. And, you know, we would just sit there and watch these female swimmers that were so muscular and had such deep voices and just swim like men. Um, 
just, uh, you know, we just watch them in awe of what they were doing, not really knowing what was going on until many, many years later when the wall came down in 1989 and then all the documents were seized and they started going through them. And I met the guy who seized a lot of those documents, Dr. Werner Franke, and, and then the subsequent you know, court cases and put a couple of coaches and officials in jail. So it was a really, really interesting story. And I, I really wish that someone would make a movie out of it. Really fascinating part of history, as mm. you say, to be at the mm. almost kind of front row seat of. You talk a little bit about a, a pivotal moment, whether it was around that time, but a realisation that you needed to do the work for yourself, that it was dependent on you. You can have coaches around you. Mm. What did that shift do for you in the way that you trained or in the way that you showed up to competitions? Yeah, it wasn't like I was slack or anything like that. I just had this I just had this moment where, you know, I went to a breakfast and the the man that was speaking at the breakfast, Dr. Dennis Waitley, one of his comments is you have to depend on yourself if you want to reach the top. And when you think about it, it's so true. Like you can make excuses, you can say, oh no, that was so-and-so's job, it's not my job, or, you know, blaming other people or, you know, just not being 110% committed. It was after that that I just, I don't know, I just fought more. I got to the pool earlier, I was last to leave, and I would do everything right, like just everything. And then, you know, later on I had to look at my nutrition, I had to look at my sleep patterns, I had to look at my recovery my strength work so it was you know it wasn't just about swimming fast from a to b it was getting every single thing right and only you can think of all those different things and you know write them in your logbook and actually take action on every single one of them to make a difference because you get one percent improvement here and one percent improvement over there and it starts to add up and in our sport, you know, sometimes, particularly in sprinting, you might only improve, you know, half a second. And you might have trained four years to get that half a second, you know. So where does that come from? They're very small increments of time in, in this sport. And a constant focus and a constant determination to try and find where they are, I, I can imagine. Yeah, and You're- then, you know, you get into a race and get distracted and it all goes out the window, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So, oh gosh, so I had, you know, plenty of those moments as well. So I think for me, winning is great. Losing is also, can be seen as a real positive, not a negative, because it's the lessons that you learn from losing are far more important um, than what you might learn from winning. Because I lost a lot of races and a lot, you know, lost a lot of major races, I was able to learn from those. And, you know, not only has it, you know, I, I, I did apply it to my swimming, but, but, but life in general, you know, I, I dig deep now on, on things that I learnt when I was swimming and things that were really ingrained into me in those early years. Can you touch on what some of those, those are? And I think it's, it is a really powerful message that often we think failure or loss is, you know, something we need to avoid and, and sometimes even that sense of shame, whether we put it on ourselves or other people around us. And yet it can be, they can be incredible gifts that, that come from learning, from understanding 
And truth be known, there's not a single person on the planet that hasn't <laughs> failed mm. or <laughs> lost mm. at something. What are some of those things that, whether it now serves you in, in life mm. or have served beyond the pool? Mm. I think um, to be completely honest and realistic, sometimes you're actually not good enough. You just, you're just not good enough. There are people who are better than you. They might, and they might be better because they're physically, you know, stronger or they train differently or whatever. But at the end of the day, I think you just got to think, you know what, I've actually given everything 100%. And if you know that you've done that, it doesn't matter whether you come first, second or last. If you've given absolutely everything, then you can't complain about your results. You know, there's, there's a lot of people who are, who, um, I've seen them at the Olympics. They come second or third and, you know, silver or bronze medal and they're at the back crying because they only won a silver or a bronze. Like I, I would have given my left foot to get onto the dice, you know. But life is all about learning. Winning is very temporary. So, you know, you can be a champion one day and what are you the next day? You know, you're back at square one, you know, working out your life like everybody else. And I also realized and understood that very few people care <laughs> if you win a race because they they just pat you out in the back and they go on with their life yeah you know, they don't really give it a second thought and then the same thing happens when you lose they say oh you know bad luck and then they go on with their own life you know they don't they don't dwell on it like we do so what I learned was whether you win or lose people actually don't really care <laughs> But it's the fear of failure that stops people from doing things. Um, and you know what? If you don't make it, so what if you don't make it? At least you had a go. But I think the difference between some people or athletes, the difference between those who make it and those who do a really, really good job is that they never give up. They just don't give up. They keep on trying. They get up every time they fail. They learn from their lessons. They dig a bit deeper. They find a different way even, you know, get another coach if that's what it needs. They find a different way. But how many times can you get up when you fail? It doesn't matter. It might be once, it might be a hundred, might be a thousand. No one can tell anyone that. That's their own that's their own journey. It's their own purpose. It's their own passion to keep getting up. Which comes back to that again, that that awareness or that arrival that we're the only ones that can do that, yeah. we can get support, we can ask for support, but it actually comes back to us. And you've had a, a, like a number of decades in that, um, particularly in your swimming career, on that global scale. And uh, no doubt, you know, some of that wisdom that you've just talked about is has been at being the front row seat of seeing the best of the world, whether they won, whether they didn't, how they responded and that, that sense of experience. You went to the Olympics in 1980 and in 1984 and in the lead up to the Barcelona Olympics of 1992 with, as a mum of two and in your late 20s you made the decision to, to train again and give it another crack at being on the dais for an Olympics. What was it that, that drove that determination for that decision there was something just inside of me that knew that we could send on the, that I could send on the dice I just knew Mr King just kept saying to me what are you doing this for you know stop pushing yourself so hard you don't need to do this you know you've got a family now but I don't know there was 
I, I, I loved training. I knew that. I loved racing. I knew that. And if I knew that if I got myself into this particular team, we had a chance. We had a shot at it. And 18 months of training and I got myself exactly where I wanted to be. But we fell short, you know, and it actually wasn't <laughs> – I don't want to blame anyone, but, it, you know, when you're in a team event, you need everyone to give everything. And, you know, it didn't quite work out that way. And so I just kind of missed that. And that was my absolute last opportunity. But you know what? At the end of the day, what 30-year-old mother of two kids goes to the Olympics and comes fifth, you know? Yeah. I, I've got to remind myself that, that what I did was pretty good. What I did was pretty special. And swam the fastest that I'd ever swum at the age of 30. So I can't be too hard on myself. You know, it just, for me, it just wasn't meant to be. The chance to break records even without the medal is is pretty phenomenal in in, in my books, let alone them being your own, own records and as well as yeah. others. That, as you say, that was it. That was that was the chance. A big part of our identity is often tied into what we do how did that shift after you retired out of swimming? Where did How did that sense of um, who you were as an identity, who you were as a person start to change? Was that, was that a, an easy transition or was that a transition that maybe took some time to navigate? Yeah, that was an easy transition for me, unlike a lot of other swimmers. It was easy for me because I had a family to go back to. So I went back to, you know, dirty nappies and vomiting at night time and, you know, preschool and ballet. That and gives you a reality <laughs> check very quickly. <laughs> oh, straight away. Like, so I, you know, the kids couldn't care less what mum had done or just been to the Olympics. They just wanted to know if we were going to the park to play. Um, and so, you you know, you're brought back to earth pretty, pretty quickly. Um, unlike a lot of other athletes who, you know, they come home from a, a big competition you know, they, they kind of don't know where they sit anymore. They don't know whether to retire, to keep going. They're disappointed or they're happy. That Then they have to work. What do they do? What are they good at? And there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of change that happens for athletes when they come back from a major competition. I was with one of my friends in 84 and she came forth and she was devastated, absolutely devastated. And you know, to have to console your, you know, your, your good friend, your best friend, and, you know, try and work through it together. She's now, you know, done so well and she's a fabulous human being. But at that time, you think the whole world's fall, fallen apart. You know, you just think, oh, my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me and life is over. You know, <laughs> that's how you feel because you've put absolutely everything into it. Um and there were times when I did feel like that too. But later on, I just came home to my family and I was I was mum again. I was nothing else other than mum. And as you say, kids and kids and family ground us and, and get us clear on what we need to be and who we need to like what we need to do on that particular day, which is find the next park often or deal with the next navvy at that stage. Yeah. You were a very and and still are a very strong public figure at, in an era and a time when media really only came through a number of outlets, and now it feels like there's a there are you know plethora of much more kind of outlets through social media and different avenues and and pathways, and that public platform was around your swimming, obviously your marriage to to Grant um, being the face of of Uncle Toby's. What was 
how did you find navigating that public face of who you were and the the private space for who you were? Mm. It came, all the public recognition came very quickly for me. Um, but I feel like I'm a real grounded person. Like when you meet me, it's just me. I'm just Lisa. Like I don't try and portray anything. I don't try and impress anybody. I'm just me. And that's what it was like at the time as well. You know, it was just us, Grant and I, two young kids having fun, getting invited to all these different things and, you know, feeling out of it or, you know, really being involved in it. But yeah, it was it was good fun and you know it was um it gave us a lot of experience and opportunities to to see what's out there in the world because I really I really loved all that side of it Grant not so much like he he still doesn't like the media you, you would never get him to do an interview you know <laughs> on yep. anything maybe unless it was on you know helicopters or surf life saving but he doesn't want anything to do with the public eye he he was he was good sort of early on, but as he's got older, he just doesn't just it's just not for him. He doesn't like it. Whereas I really loved it from day one because um, I got to travel a lot, and meet lots of people, and you know go to little swimming clubs in country towns, and you know everyone's so lovely. And I, yeah, I really like I really loved everything that I did. Um, but you know, keeping in mind that was forty years ago, you know it's a long time. And still pretty much nothing's changed. I'd still go out to a little local swimming club and, you know, hang with them all and have a sausage sizzle and a, and a beer with the parents afterwards, you know. It's, it's what I like to do. Knowing, yeah, what fits for you, how whether, you know, your connection and relationship to it and that, that groundedness of who we are becomes really, really key and really important. You went on and you are a, a you know, a strong businesswoman and continued to kind of do coaching that got that was still seen on the on the world stage. I'd love you to talk a little bit about your experience with coaching and pulling together a team in outrigger canoeing. What was it that kind of led you into that sport? And then what was the next decision to go, let's take this from maybe something we do on the weekend to actually put it on the world stage? Hmm. It was interesting because, you know, being an individual athlete my whole life, you do, you, de- you depend on yourself. You win, you lose, you succeed, you fail. It's, you know, everything's up to you. But in a team sport, it's completely different. So a couple of things. So growing up, I wanted to be a phys ed teacher. And so I liked the idea of teaching. I went to teacher's college. And then, you know, obviously swimming for 23 years, and I had my, my role models as my coaches and then I started this other sport. We we had a coach, but we were pretty useless, to be honest. You know, we, we didn't even win a race, but we we're all good mates. Um, and then I had an opportunity to take over the coaching. And I thought, here's my chance to teach all these girls everything that I've learned. Because everything that I'd learned was just in my head. I had nothing to do with all this information. And so I started coaching the girls and long story short, we, we weren't winning any races and um, we started winning and then we won four world championships together as a group of friends, mothers, you know, athletes. We were training nine times a week. Everyone was fit. Everyone was fast. 
And it was so much fun to win with others. Because like I said, when you win on your own, really no one cares. You know, your mum says, yeah, that's good and keeps going. But when when you win as a group, you you talk about those moments forever. I had half of my team over here, you know, a couple of nights ago for my 60th party. And, um, you know, we're all, you know, it was the outrigger girls on the dance floor having the most fun <laughs> at the end of the night. Coach you them know. well. <laughs> yeah, I did coach them well. But, you know, that's what it's all about is just enjoying what you do and being involved and being part of a team and being part of a winning team is so much fun. And, you know, you can do that in a business as well. You know, you get into business and everyone's buying into what the goals are and everyone's having a good time and helping each other, encouraging each other, supporting each other and being there for each other and, you know, working hard for the common goals. So, yeah, that was a, a really great part of my life and I, I coached for another 20 years so it was fun. Putting into place as you say putting into place some of the things that you were on the receiving end and to be in that kind of coaching space um, and really fascinating when you talk about going from a solo sport in, in so many ways even in a relay team you're a relay team for that that meet or even for that heat at times mm. but to be really a, a dedicated team coming together and, and seeing what winning looks like from that team and seeing that experience yeah. is really powerful yeah well see in a relay you still rate even though you're a team you're racing as individuals but in outrigging you're six people in a canoe trying to do the same thing for six hours and then have substitutes in as well so it, kind of kind of different teams but the philosophy is sort of the same what do you think are the components of of a winning team what is it whether you were maybe what you were coaching with this group um or what you've seen or experienced being part of a team that might be in business might be in work it might be in the sporting field what are the things that you look for to go yep they're a winning team or they've they've got it together yeah i think when i gave them something that was really hard i could see who wanted it and who didn't for example, I had a chin-up bar put up at our clubhouse and I would walk in there and I would just walk in and do two sets of 10 chin-ups, no problem. And then I'd just stand back and wait and watch to see who'd give it a go, to see. And you know what? I don't care if someone could have done one. I, what I cared about is how much they wanted to try to do it properly because what it makes of someone trying is more important than, you know, just stepping out and going, oh, no, I don't want to do that. So I would do, you know, strange little things like that just to see who wanted it the most. And, you know, we would, for example, we would go out into the ocean for two hours and I'd take everyone's water bottles off them and see how much they complained when they got thirsty. Because sometimes in a race, your escort boat disappears. It has a breakdown. And you have to keep paddling without a water bottle. So it's just a test. So there were all, always these little tests. And it's funny because they all, you know, if I see them now, they'll send me messages and they say, well, remember when we did this and, you, you know, we said we couldn't do this or that. And they said, I always remember that. You know, one of the girls I coached, she took off 43 kilos wow. to make my world championship team. You know, and she had to make that team like everyone else. She had to try out for it and... You know, she just did the most amazing job and it proved to me that, you know, people can do extraordinary things 
ordinary people can do extraordinary things when they put their mind to it. And the other thing is too that because of my swimming, I was like the master of visualization. I would paint this picture for them so clear that every time it got hard in training, I would remind them of that picture. Because when we raced in Hawaii, it was summer. But training for that race, we trained in the winter. So, you know, we had to do a lot of our, our work when it was freezing cold and raining. And, you know, we were just, you know, we had three or four layers on because we were in the water. So when, when once we got to Hawaii and peeled off and we we're in a bikini paddling, you know, completely different again. So there's all of these factors multiplied by, you know, 100 when you've got 10 girls in a team sport, you know, and, and I had a team of, you know, between 40 and 50 girls. So, you know, it was it was very, very satisfying to me and, and all the lessons I learned from that I can I can use now as well. The strength that can be forged through through challenge, I think, is something we grossly underestimate. And we say that there are world champions, there are there is talent and there is what we can do with that level of, of determination. Life is not always easy and one of the things in the memoir is you touch on, again, there are, there are hardships and strengths that are forged through that. You touch on your experience of your parents and, and their relationship and the, some of the tough times in that, the, the tough times of your marriage with Grant and, and that finishing up and the really important decision but also that's a tough decision and, and the hardship with your beautiful daughter, kind of Jamie, and the experience she went through and the, the toughness of that for your family. If there's someone listening who might be facing their kind of own hardship, whatever that might be, as we, we said, you know, strength can be forged through challenges. Some of those we invite and some just get thrown our way. What encouragement or what things, reflections have you got around the strength that can be forged through challenge that, that you might share with someone who might be facing hardship at the moment? Yeah, I used to talk to um, teenage kids about home life and what type of home life do they come from? And I would talk to them about what happened in my home life. And, and the, basically I was trying to say to them, you know what, it doesn't really matter what happens to you at home you know, you are your own person. You can make decisions. If you want to go and do, you know, A, B and C, then you go and do it. You know, it doesn't matter what happens at home. Because I know that our home life, it really did affect my sister a lot and me not so much, probably because I was focusing on my swimming. But I'm also the type of person who can let things go, sometimes more easily than others. But I think at the bottom, the bottom line is this, that, you know, we're only put on this earth for a short time. So what are we going to do with our time that we're here? You know, are we going to spend our life being miserable or are we going to spend our life just living it and having fun? Because that's a choice. You know, some people would disagree with that and say, well, that's not a choice because, you know, you've got issues and, and I, I agree with that. But, you know, there are, there are times when you can wake up in the morning and say, you know what, today I'm going to decide to be happy and I'm going to do everything in my power to be because it's actually a good day 
and you can go out and have have fun. Um, because of what's happened to me, you know, I've had the the worst couple of last couple of years, and you know, it's taught me most people are probably going through this in some way. That every second person walking along the street is struggling in some way. So I always remember what my coach said to me that a kind word or a hug or some support can go a long way. And, you know, I have oh, so many people now come and, you know, they come and give me a hug and tell me their story. And, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking or it's funny or it's, you know, full of adventure, whatever their stories are. But I know that we're not alone and we can always ask for help. And I think too, just taking away some of the the guilt and the shame from and the stigma from different issues that people have and being able to talk about it openly and asking for help. Because that's what that's what we yeah. do in my business too. Like we have we have over five hundred thousand women in our private Facebook group pages and email database, maybe even more than that. But we encourage the ladies in our groups to to speak openly about how they feel. And we have staff seven days a week where we communicate with these ladies every single day. And do you know what? Some of the ladies there have just said, you know what, being in this group has really saved me because they were able to say what they felt. You know, that for me that's really important because... My business is really important to me because we're helping others, because we give them natural solutions to help themselves. I guess that's a little bit of teacher that I had when I was 18 still coming out in me. So, you know, people are wonderful and, yes, life is hard. Yes, life is tough. Yes, life sucks sometimes, but this is your only life. This is your only shot at it. So... Think about what you want to do that's fun. The other thing I talk about too is that if you hate your job, get out of it. Go and do something that you love. Like there's no point getting up every morning and going to a job that you hate. You could go and mow the lawns for people and enjoy it a lot more than going to a, you know, an office job if that's you know, what you want. That, but that's the choice that you have. And yes, you might have to take a pay cut. You might go sideways or down a little bit. But boy, you might get your life back. Life's way too short, <laughs> way too short. And I think there's been yeah. a lot of that. Again, you throw a global pandemic or just a shake up of every habit we've ever had, a shake up of our world in the last couple of years that we've experienced. And I think there is this reconnection or realisation of that. And in amongst the uncertainty of COVID, of work, of travel, life has also continued. And I agree, I think there's, there is a lot of grief and hardship that people are facing at the moment um, and the power of finding those safe spaces to be able to talk, to share. All of a sudden we don't feel as alone. We feel connected. And, you know, what sits underneath that in all its forms is is a level of grief. And it might be grief from we didn't get to go on that family holiday that we had planned two years ago. Or it might be a grief mm. from, oh, yeah, I don't love this job anymore, but I don't know where to go. And for me, you know, grief is the entry ticket of love. It's it's the, the thing that we, you know, our deepest experience, love is is such a key part of our life and part of our connection to family. Right at the end of the book, you talk about this being the time for you to start finding Lisa again 
in terms of what's next, the next 30 years, the jump off for that, what, uh, what's exciting you about what's next? Um, some days not much. <laughs> you know, I'm still in that, I'm still in that hole. Sometimes there are things that I think, oh, yeah, you know, I feel good today. I'm going to do this. And then, you know, something happens or a thought comes by and you just get pushed back in that hole again. It's hard. It's really hard. It's not, I don't, it's kind of like the first time in my life where I've never really known what I want to do because I'm just, I don't know, I just feel stuck. But we're going to get in, we've got a, we are, we've got a bus, like a van and a bit of van life. And I just, I want to have time where I can just get in the van with my husband and our puppy and just bugger off. <laughs> just bugger off and go somewhere. I don't care where, as long as we're underneath the stars, because that's actually what I like doing. And I think, you know, we, we, we preach so much in our company, Happy Healthy You, about self-care, but I'm not doing that for myself. So I need to start walking my own talk, preach, you know, what I pra practice what you preach. You know, I just have to find my way again. And it's hard. Some, and I think you have to be ready as well because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this, but and then you got to do it and you're not ready. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you're not ready yet. When you are ready, it should come, you know, a bit easier. So that's where I am at the moment. I'm kind of at the 60-year crossroad. And crafting that space, sitting sitting with, I, you know, when you say sometimes you're not ready, it can be trying to be ready but your feet are kind of stuck in mud and so you, it's not quite taking off yet and just that sitting with, crafting the space, finding the stars sounds like a good recipe. Mm. Yeah, and I think too, you know, my my poor mum passed away two months ago too and, you know, just to see her poor quality of life towards the end was really hard to watch and I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be in that physical state that she was in and, and you know, I, I look at Grant's mum who's only slightly younger and she's running around, you know, looking after the great-grandchildren and you know, still doing so much, and that's a choice. That's a choice that comes many, many years earlier to look after yourself and to, you know, stay active and go to the gym and walk every day and eat better and, you know, surround yourself with the right people. That is a choice. And what I like to tell people is it's never too late to start. You know, don't let the grass grow under your feet, you know, just keep moving keep doing different things, volunteer or find a new hobby, you know, because that's what life's all about. You don't, you don't want to be lying around at the end of your life with no life and just existing. That's not fun. No, the, the as you say, the, the sense of choice around what can we do now that's an investment into, into that future, that future state, that future mm. desire about what that actually looks like is, is really powerful as well I can see and feel there's this this crossroad at the moment and the chance to kind of sit and find that space but still with a sense of determination or a clarity around where where you might want to end up have that opportunity yeah I think you know I feel like my whole life I've been helping people 
um, but maybe now it's time to help myself and get myself back on track because you can't help others if you're not feeling good yourself. I think that's a priority for me. I, I just have to find time to make it a priority. <laughs> How silly is that? I know because I'm so I'm so busy. I kind of I can't sort of get a day to start. But, when you um, launch a book, that maybe, that'll happen. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's a lot on. I know, but you know, it's just taking baby steps and and doing something each day that makes you feel a little bit better. And look, you might have touched on your answer to this and so totally okay if you want to reiterate it, but I've, I've truly valued your time and thank you in amongst, you know, the busyness and everything that you have on. I want to wrap up with one final question. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to live a standout life? I think it means just really... If everyone had that standout life, they would be standing up being proud of what they've achieved in the past and feeling proud about what they're going to achieve in the future, but having those dreams and actioning them. You know, sometimes you stand up, you stand out, even in the way you walk, you feel confident, you feel empowered, you love what you do, you have this energy that's around you that's you know, inspiring and motivating. And that comes from looking after yourself. And it comes from having the dreams and goals that are good for you, not what other people want you to do. So I think, you know, that's what I would say there. I'd sign up for that. Making the choices, doing the things (laughs) that are good for you and looking after yourself. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. Thanks, Sally. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.